Hi everyone, welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today, both Michael and I have a conversation with Courtney Hammond-Wagner. Courtney is a postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University and received her PhD from the University of Vermont. We discuss some of the challenges of navigating a career in academia and changing rules and norms of the science system itself. We then get into Courtney's research on water governance in California and challenges for using frameworks in science with the example of Ostrom's social ecological systems framework. Yeah, it just hasn't, it doesn't feel, I thought maybe things would like slow down a little bit once I wrapped up my PhD and it just hasn't. So I'm waiting for that, <laughs> that slow down that maybe will never come. Yeah, does it ever slow it, down? Uh, I don't think it comes unless you make it come. I don't think the world ever says like, okay, you've done enough. Yeah, and I think that is the big struggle I'm having right now is like realizing that I have to say that, you know? Yeah. And so trying to figure out how like what that what that balances and what my goals are in that i've been Mm -hmm. spending some time thinking about it but it's it's difficult to do it is i mean it's one of these pieces of advice that's always it's most advice i guess it's easier to give than to actually implement (laughs) well i mean so for example right like you know because it's always so easy to like well once i get this once i get the job once i get tenure once i get whatever it's like but that becomes just a way of punting on actual behavioral change totally and I think, happier. and I think I saw that even, you know, at UVM, seeing mm. faculty who were tenured and being like, "Wow, you're still living this lifestyle," you know, that oh, yeah. I I feel is like a crazed graduate student, and you know, realizing that the change doesn't just happen, and no. I don't want to be that crazy <laughs> tenured <No>. faculty. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know when you implement those changes or how or but trying to think about that and not sure if Stanford's the best place to do that. Yeah, sure. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, but, it's hard because yeah. you can get tracked. I mean, it's so much path dependence here. Right. And then you surround yourself with like other high performing motivated people, but they're not going to be the ones that are going to encourage you to make some of these changes. They're going to be implicitly encouraging you to stay where you are. Totally. Yeah. And I think this goes back to it. Stefan and I were just chatting about briefly before you hopped on is I think I told you this but I have a ba- I have a baby he's not a baby anymore he's two yeah congratulations <laughs> thank you yeah um and you know recognizing that that is not you know that's not the norm to have, do that during a PhD mm. it's also not the norm to have a kid as a postdoc and right. you know that that just I think in a good way it shifts my priorities because he makes them that way <laughs> you know there's right. no there's no getting around that, and I'm grateful for it most of the time. But recognizing that there, you know, are pretty clear trade-offs in that, and other people are not really abiding by those or necessarily respecting them, you know. Right. And I, you know, I've I've decided that whatever that means for my career, I'm I'm good with that. That's what I want. I want. Mm want my career to work with having a family but then you start to see it play out and you're like oh that's what it means you know that's what it means to make that trade-off right Uh, yeah once it's not that abstract yeah go ahead sorry yeah no right it's like once it's easy up front well it's not easy but it's easier up front to be like yeah this is worth it this is what i want to do and and i 100 percent abide by that right but once you're like oh i you know does that mean i'm not going to go to that to that event where, you know, I can make connections or I could go to this conference or I'm just going to not write that paper. <laughs> it's like right. those things sort of start to, you can't do it all. It becomes very real. 
pretty fast. Yeah, and again, like no one else is going to tell you like when you've done enough. You have to be able to do that for yourself. That's yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's also like in, there's a rhetoric of like the rhetoric outpaces the practice a lot of the time, where we have these ideas of <laughs> well, we're going to be understanding and more inclusive, and of course. Of course, if you need this or that and the other thing, like we'll accommodate. But like, and you know, and then we we hear it's like, oh, it's important to say no sometimes. But like, sometimes you say no, and like people react negatively, or they take it personally, or all of these things. And it's like, oh, it's, it's exactly what you're saying, right? It's like, oh, this is what this means to actually behave this way. You face these right. consequences, right? Yeah, and it's and and I feel that too. Like I have to make those decisions too, you know, others. Yeah. Like I've had, I had that experience with, I, I, w- I had very supportive advisors, but you know, mm-hmm. like when it becomes the reality that like I can or can't do that, it's like, well, I'm understanding, but now that that work still needs to get done in some way. Right. Right. But then I was thinking about it as, so my son was born, like he was born five weeks early. And so I had all these plans to get, <laughs> to get two papers written before he was born. And then of course that didn't happen because he was born five weeks early. Right. And, and what that meant was that I went from being first author on a paper to second author because I wasn't able to carry the paper through. And that was fine. You know, that was a choice that I made and it made sense, but it was, you know, I realized that was a very clear, like, okay, well, I'm going from taking the lead to stepping back on this because, right. you know, I, it's out of my control now. And yeah, just, I mean, that's not a, it's not a huge deal, but it was just sort of a, 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 a clear outcome of prioritizing having a family and the academic deadlines and timelines that need to be met. And it's not quite as smooth as you'd hope it would be. No, that's good material. I might clip that into the podcast. <laughs> I was assuming this was all good content. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, well, I'm ready to, to roll, but I didn't I didn't give you fair warning, Courtney, that we were going to start, and I don't know if you want to. You know, there is a certain no. observer effect. You start to you think a little no, bit more somehow that people are listening, so I'll give you at least fair warning. Yeah, no, I'm happy to, and happy to include that. I feel like I talk about this a lot just because people don't talk about it enough, you know, and, and then not talking about having kids and a family at this age, you, or this phase of your career, it's like then you just don't, you don't know what's out there and you don't want other know what other people have done. And it's just exponentially more difficult with that. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. if that's different, Stefan, in Europe, in the European system. But anyways, happy to happy to chat about that and include it. Well, if you don't have any questions, then I feel like I have to, even though we've been chatting for 10 minutes, give you a proper welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Happy to be here. We were just we were just chatting before this started that about the, the difference between having kids and, and at the different various stages of the academic career. And yeah, you'd ask me whether I could generalize whether it was different in Europe compared to your experience, which maybe you can briefly summarize again. I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to to generalize between the different countries. For me, the observation has mostly been related to my working group. I think it comes down to the working group level, and of course, there's going to be policies at the institute or the department level, wherever you are. But if you're, for me, it's it's the professor I'm working with and the group that I'm a part of and the department leaders, they're very flexible and they're very understanding and they both have kids themselves and they both went through having kids as uh, young academics, either in their PhDs or in their postdocs. And that's been real supportive for me. And then the other side of it is the German social support system is much more welcoming in general to parents on the job market with the amount of parental leave and the kind of financial support that you get. And I'm not really sure, actually, because I haven't been through that in in the U.S. context, um, what types of benefits you get at a public university versus a private university. If you're funded on a stipend or a third-party project versus you're funded through 
yeah, state funding or something like this, if the benefits would differ, and then that would play a role in influencing, like you said, that whether you can take different leave or you could get some paid time off or you have health insurance or the type of health insurance that you have. It's super, it seems like it plays a role, but I'm not really sure as to what level of detail uh, you can you can generalize it too. I think, I mean, when I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he had this quote that's, I don't know, from the 80s or something about person, like he said, personnel is policy, which really struck me. It's, it seems like partly that's what you're talking about, Stefan, is like a lot of what matters is, is the people that you're actually with and that you're working with because they're the ones that are going to ultimately just in a lot of like informal ways enforce the norms that affect your life. I would agree with that. And I, and I think, Stefan, the way you described what you how you think it would work in the U.S. is right. It's very varied, and but I think ultimately it does still come down to your advisors for the most part and your funding. Sometimes I've I've heard that some um, fellowships do write in parental leave, or it's acceptable use of the fellowship. That wasn't my situation, but the the differences in terms of uh, university policy is pretty stark and generally pretty uh, behind the times, it feels like. So mm-hmm. so that was um, that was sort of one of the big takeaways for me in having a baby during my PhD. So the quick summary is that I, I knew going into my PhD that I wanted to have a baby at some point during my PhD. And so I um, I just sort of planned that it would be around the second or third year. And so I had my son the beginning of the fourth year and, um, and everything was good and healthy pregnancy. And, but when I started looking for, um, information on what my options were and what my rights were and how to take leave, there was just nothing. There was absolutely nothing. The, The only information I could find was that my health insurance the benefits list or whatever included, you know, maternity or, or essentially like, you know, an illness that is having a baby because it's considered an illness through the healthcare system. And that was, it was like that I would be covered under my health insurance. Um, and so I, I started asking around cause I knew some women who had had babies before me and everyone that I talked to had a different story, which ranged from taking like a full medical leave and three months off unpaid to working like six months with kind of part-time with this arrangement with their advisors. And none of this was officially sanctioned by the university. So when I went to the university and said, you know, what I'd like to do is take three months off and, and pause my funding and then come back. They were like, we can't do that. (laughs) We don't have a policy that allows that. And if you do that, you'll lose health insurance. It's interesting that they don't have a policy that allows that. It's, it seems hard to believe that you would be, you know, you're not the, the first person to have that situation. And so I wonder yeah, where, where, this, where, exactly. the, where the hiccup in the process is there and what everyone ends up doing, because there must be I mean, thousands of people. I have no idea, but there must be many, many, many people who have that situation. And I wonder if they just, what they do and how they deal with it. Yeah. So what I was told was that I should go back to my department and then we would like twist some arms to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think what happens is typically you make an arrangement with your advisor and the, you know, the administration really doesn't have a part in it. And it seemed like they didn't want to have a part in it. And so 
in some cases, their I mean their stance, and and I ended up speaking to the administration pretty extensively about this. Their stance was that you know no policy, in some cases, is a better policy because it actually allows students to get an arrangement where they can take paid leave, whereas the administration probably wouldn't be able to support that. And so, and I think that in some cases that's true. So that's, that is what I ended up doing. I ended up asking my advisors to give me time off and pay me for it so that I would maintain health insurance. Um, and they did, but ultimately then you're up to the whim of your advisor. And mm-hmm. we all know that advisors are, can be different. And, um, and that's just a little bit of a vulnerable situation. So yeah, I was thinking a little bit while you were talking about what you said earlier about the pressure, and I think it depends a little bit on where the pressure comes from. And, you know, a lot of the pressure that we have comes internally, and we you don't necessarily know, or Michael, you mentioned that you have to be the one who puts the who puts the cap on what's enough and, and what your limits are going to be. And a lot of that is created internally, but it's also external. And I think that really depends... Yeah, exactly. On your direct colleagues, or you give the example that you had to take the second position and not the lead position on a on a paper uh, because your child came early. I mean, wh- where is that pressure coming from? Is that is the pressure to meet the journal submission deadline? Is it the professor because of the colleague who doesn't understand that you need a little bit more time? Um, is it from the external funder who's not willing to budge because they want you to turn something in on the exter- on the certain external deadline? And I think. It becomes a lot of it's more of these personal relationships. You kind of try to reach out to people as you go and you try to break down the walls a little bit as you go by asking. I don't think it should necessarily be like that. It shouldn't, you shouldn't put the, the pressure on the person who's, who's having that situation to, to ask favors of everyone to help them. But it seems to be that that's the case. And, and was that, is that somewhat your experience as well? Yeah, I think so. I, I would say yes. And I think, I think part of it is that we, there just isn't quite, we sort of have this expectation that like things just um, need to keep going, you know, and that we don't quite in our system in the U.S. like have a built-in expectation that like, oh, it's normal for someone to take a break and have a child. And so it's sort of seen as this, and I, I guess, I don't know if I'm speaking for everybody, but my experience is sort of seen as inconvenience that like, oh, well, okay, now we take a pause and allow for that to happen or else we need to figure out a way to have things keep going because it's not acceptable to have a pause. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's, that's probably partially, inter- you know, internally imposed that I put that on myself that like, I want to keep things going. I don't want to um, lose steam, especially in my PhD, you know, I, having a baby, there's this uncertainty of whether you're going to actually be able to finish. And that's both externally and internally imposed, you know, you just don't know what it's going to be like. And so this feeling that like, well, maybe I need to kind of keep a foot in the door so that I can make sure I'll be able to get back into it. Yeah, I think there's also, I talked about this with Kirsty Nash. She's on the podcast and I think it was episode 13 or 14. And she started this program, Academic Life, to help parents and navigate academic challenges, just like the ones we're talking about now. And we had a conversation towards the end of that podcast about the framing of having a kid in academia as something that's negative. You have to take a break. You have to ask for favors. It's going to be a hurt on your career. You're going to have less time. But we talked a lot, and I, I talked to some colleagues about it afterwards. That it, there's also many positive things. I mean, they're outweighing. And I think the, the the discourse is almost backwards. You know, it gives you a lot of energy. It gives you a little bit more of a purpose and a drive to doing things. It it's already forcing me to be a little bit more disciplined about my time. I think. Yeah. I mean, Go for my guys. I agree. Well, I mean, I'm trying to. Yeah. 
I mean, part of the issue is certainly like the kind of the racetrack treadmill mentality that dominates a lot of professional life about where there is this possibility of quote unquote falling behind. I mean, I think, and there's a lot of things going on when you're talking about those well, are two things, you know, whether the onus should or shouldn't be on like a person to advocate for themselves. I mean, I think, you know, I, to me, that's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. People need to be able to advocate for themselves and do that. If they don't, the world kind of, and this is something that we all kind of need to learn in different ways is to be able to stand up for ourselves. Because if we don't, the world's going to fill in the gaps and fill in the spaces that we don't occupy ourselves. But I think that doesn't mean that the discourse should be all about, well, if, if you didn't get something that you want, then it's really your fault. I mean, I think that's a different, that's not a conclusion that comes from that, the initial observation. I think the, this, the, the question then is like, how do we, how do we empower people to feel a little safe about standing up for themselves, right? I mean, how do we enable them to do that in ways that works for them, knowing that ultimately that they do need to do some, uh, a fair amount of that to be able to represent themselves and what they need, et cetera. In terms of the, you know, the, and this is something that we think about all the time in like governance studies, right? Is formal versus informal? Can you, can you actually legislate things? Can you impose rules? And, you know, there's the standard trade-offs where we need consistency across cases. That's like part of the basic norms of like the rule of law and justice, et cetera, like depend on doing that. But at the same time, well, there's multiple issues with that, you know, Sometimes cases need to be treated differently. And the other, I think, even more subtle but equally important is it's really hard to legislate and, and, and formalize behave, like meaningful behavioral change in lots of places. You know, you can say to someone who's in a position of power, like, well, you need to do this. But if they don't, if they don't want to treat people certain ways, it's hard to get a policy that's going to force them to do that formally on a piece of paper. Yeah. So it feels like how do you actually, so it ends up being like, how do you encourage, how do you get actual behavioral change that's internalized, right? So this is, I mean, to me, a lot of this is about actually, how do you internalize norms? How do you get people to internalize norms so that they want to behave in certain ways? Because, you know, someone could have a policy where it's like, where like, okay, you can imagine someone being like, oh, well, you know, you need this thing, so I guess we'll do it. And, but then they make you feel like crap for doing it. Well, is that really that helpful? You know, if, if you know that the people around you are disapproving of, of what you're doing, whether it's having a kid or whatever it is, like that's, that's not the, they might be following the letter of the law, but not the, the spirit of it and actually supporting you. Yeah, Michael, I'd be interested to hear if you know or have any insights into how they do it at Dartmouth, having from a faculty perspective or having a faculty position. I mean, do they, I mean, how do we govern the science system? At, if you look at your own university as a case study, what what um, types of procedures do they have in place? What types of committees? What types of you know institutions? Those what are those rules and norms governing your science system? And do you think that that's is that a unique case at, at the compared to some of the other universities you've had experience with? I'm sure it's not unique. I mean, I've I know I've learned about this the way that human beings tend to learn about things is either by going through the, themselves, which I have not been a young parent, but I've you know as you get older, you inevitably become friends with. I've, I know lots of young faculty who are now have had kids and, you know, their experience has seemed to be that there's like a lot of uncertainty about like, you know, what you, what benefits you, you have available to you that you can maybe take advantage of to help you. I know there is a policy that you get 
I mean, ultimately, a lot of this comes down to like uh, course releases because that's like the most immediate obligation that um, we have as faculty. Is like that's the thing that that really imposes inflexible demands on you, right? You, like you have to show up and you have to do this stuff. So there is a policy. You know, I forget the numbers, but it's like one to two course releases if you're if you have a child. Beyond that, I haven't. You know, that's the, that's the stuff that I've heard from my colleagues who have gone through it, and so that they 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 do get that benefit. You know, I don't know if it really, my impression is that it doesn't extend an awful lot beyond that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I have heard, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of variation by department and personality and by chair and et cetera about how much informal support there is. There's, I've heard anecdotes of, of people who have not been so supportive. I've heard stories of, you know, other environments that seem quite supportive, you know, and I do think my, it does feel like there's a correlation between people who have had personal experiences with something being more supportive of it. And it'd be nice if human nature wasn't quite constituted that way so that people could kind of more thoroughly, empathically abstract from their own experience to like engage with someone else's different experience. But that, you know, as I was saying, I was undersensitive to these issues until it affected people that I knew and cared about. Well, and I think it sort of connects back to what we were talking about, you know, where in abstract you're in support and then when it impacts you and yes. it requires additional work or it requires yes. change in your daily routine, it's, it becomes a nuisance. Yep. And I don't know if that's part of how things get changed is that is trying to figure out ways to like make those real impacts more tangible in then that sort of connect that to the abstract, you know, or, or yeah. offer solutions and paths through those challenges as they arise. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, you know, you basically, I think you know someone's values once actually implementing them costs them something. Otherwise, it's very easy to say, well, I, I'm in support of this, et cetera. I'm in support of that in the abstract. I'm, if what you really mean is I'm support of someone else taking care of this because I think that someone else should do it, but I don't really want to have to be bothered. I mean, that sounds cynical, but, you know, I heard the, the term, maybe the controversial term, like limousine liberals the other day is basically like people that are in support of like these broad set of social values, but ultimately don't generally have to bear the cost of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the challenge. It's like, how do you, when it actually costs you something to believe in something, then that's, I think for yourself too, you find out it's like, oh, I now have to like basically adapt what I'm doing because my colleagues have these constraints. I don't think that's a trivial process. I don't think that's, in my own experience, it's taken some reflection and self-sorting to think like, okay, how do I think through this? How do I, how do I actually work to get this project done, et cetera? It's not just like, oh, well, of course we do it this way and that way because it's, it gets complicated. Yeah. And I think that this also connects to something, Stefan, we were chatting about briefly where there's at least for graduate students and my experience now as a postdoc that there's this perception that your life doesn't really start until after that. Oh. And I had this, even in the introduction, you know, there's this sort of postdoc orientation and, and the person speaking said, oh, well, postdoc life isn't life. Like you need to get out of here as fast as you can. Oh, and God. while I appreciate the sentiment of wanting to, you know, move on, it's, I think that what that enables is this, or at least it, it seems to then allow people to disregard other aspects of your life, you know, and mm -hmm. as a PhD student and now as a postdoc, I, I often find myself randomly inserting into conversations that I have a child <laughs> mm. and people are very surprised, you know, they don't expect a postdoc or a PhD student to have a child and to have a family. And there's always this sort of moment of like, oh, well, 
oh, that you're, you know, you have more in your life than just your work. And mm-hmm. maybe there are things that we can connect on. And yeah, I don't know. It's been an interesting, I guess I just realized recently that I do that, you know, that I often bring it up in conversations. And I'm mm. not sure, it's, it doesn't seem to be a common thing for people to talk about their kids and to, you know, to, to bring it up when you're meeting a new colleague. But I do mostly just to assert that, you know, this isn't the... I, you know, yeah. let's, let's break this norm, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I frankly think it's a crappy norm. This whole idea that like your life should just be perpetually on hold. And, you know, it's, it's reinforcing this mentality we were talking about that like my life parentheses, like in some ways, like the things that make me happy should all be like put on hold until what? Cause there's always going to be a next thing. And then you meet a 55 year old who's still on that treadmill Right. And it's kind of shocking. You're like, okay, well then what? So until you retire? So we're all just like, we're working towards 65? Like, goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is it about academia, which brings that mentality? I was, I was just thinking as you guys were chatting about that. Is it that you kind of this sacrifice for the greater purpose idea? Or is it that science draws certain types of personalities uh, who've been willing to work hard for kind of this academic success all the way up through elementary, high school, graduate school? And then it kind of feeds on the personalities of those people who have already been drawn into the system for that reason. Or is it that the career of academia more than other careers is very much, you're almost like your own business in academia. I mean, you kind of stand for your own ideas and you work for a university and you represent an organization, but I mean, you're, your name is the one which is on all of the papers. I think it's part of it. I think it's also easy to think that your own system is more unique than it is. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know people in business and they talk about socially counterproductive norms where you're working like 80 hours a week in a new consulting job or whatever it is. And that seems pretty bad. So I'm not, you know, and pe- people talk about problems with like the tenure system or incentives, et cetera, or the fact that we don't, you know, professors don't formally get taught to teach all that much. Like there's a lot of issues that you could bring up in academia. And I, I mean, I was talking to a student this morning and one thing I told her, it's like, you're going to figure out that like most people in the world are just figuring it out. <laughs> like yeah. they weren't, most people were never taught to do what they're doing because ultimately you just, you figure it out as you're doing it. Right. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that most of this stuff is like all that unique to academia. I don't have like the data as a good academic to back the up. I don't know. I also do think there's a self-reinforcing aspect to the culture. I think it's, I don't know where to insert the word insecurity, but I think it's doing a lot of work. There's, a, you know, people, people are insecure. Um, I think it's just a part of the state of being human in some ways. And I think that we all get kind of nerve, you know, you can kind of hear me trying to figure out how to actually articulate this. Yeah, well, one aspect that I've been thinking about it a lot, I think it was your conversation with Krister Anderson, Michael where you guys talked about, correct me if it was someone else, but where you talked about the, the when you have an indicator, then the indicator becomes the goal um, yeah. for a lot of things. And I've been thinking a lot about that for, for the last weeks or so since I re-listened back to that. And I, th- I think in academia, there's so many examples of that where we look towards quantifiable indicators. I mean, maybe because we're kind of drawn in and a lot of us think quantitatively and think about data and think about numbers that we're even more susceptible to that in the career to have data which represents our progress and then that driving those numbers up, H index impact factor, citation rates, uh, things like this become the goal. And those goals are, there's no one capping what is good with those things or what is, what is, can, 
what is the self-evaluated right. level at which you can then say, oh, I've, I've achieved something compared to everyone else. Um, right. and instead of science becoming this, this pursuit of, of, you know, intellectual freedom, which you should have, as, especially if you have or a tenured... Or this passion that you have for these ideas. Right, especially if you have a tenured position, this is the idea kind of behind it, that you can have the freedom to, to engage without the pressure of something external. But we've kind of created our own external pressure with these indicators, and it's changed somehow the goal. That's at least how I've been thinking about it the last weeks. I think it really crowds out some of the... I mean, the, the idea that we're all motivated to do this and work so hard because we have a passion for it, I think that's the ideal, but I think that gets crowded out by these indicators in this mentality that I would just call productivist, right? So it's about more is better, full stop. And I mean, getting back to something, you know, being kind of reflexive about this podcast, when I talk to people about what I've enjoyed about this podcast, it's that it's it's gotten back to kind of an artisanal mindset for me where I'm, I'm having thicker conversations with people about things that I care about. And that is felt like a really healthy antidote to starting to feel like every interview or survey is simply a, a row in a spreadsheet, which of course is not bad. Like that's data. I guess I should say those are data. But I really had missed kind of this connection to a more artisanal sensibility. And I think I also think that we lose that connection to to the papers that we write. I mean, the, the times when I actually like writing is when I develop a kind of an affection for a paper, and it feels like this feels artisanal. It feels like a, I'm, you know, practicing a craft. I'm caring about the writing, and there's there's lots of ways we get away from that. Some of it's academies where we kind of we get professionalized to obfuscate, um, which I think is its own problem. But the other is when we just start treating papers as if they're items on an assembly line. So to bring this full circle, <laughs> I think what you're saying, Michael, and connecting to that to Stefan's comment about the indicators, and then back to the, is it Christy Nash, the interview on academic life? Um, something that I've been sort of struggling with and thinking about that and the comment of, you know, um, being a parent brings these positive things to your career and how do we frame it as a positive? The thing that I don't want that to focus on is that, you know, being a parent makes me more productive and allows me to write more papers and to hit more of those indicators. Because I think that at least the way, you know, I want to add that pressure that then I have to exceed above and beyond because I'm now a parent and because I'm now, you know, I now do the academic things better. But it almost feels to me like the transition in the way that I work, it's, it's almost more like what you're describing, Michael, where it's like, since I'm now this sort of split personality where I have my time with my child and I have my time at work, I really want my time at work to be something that's meaningful. Yes. And I want to be able to devote myself to a passion and engage with it in a way that feels meaningful and produce good work and have meaningful conversations and relationships on topics that matter um, and not just for the indicators, not just to get, um, you know, to pad my CV and to get the right job. I want to feel like there's a good reason that I'm spending time away from my kid, you know, and I'm not quite sure what the indicators are for that, but I do think it makes me a better researcher. It's just how we, like, I don't know if we can capture that as much in the indicators. Yeah, I'm not sure there's, I mean, I'm sure there's not an easy answer to this, but I, I mean, you know, part of this is, well, I think there's a, there is a self-reinforcing nature to some of this where 
you know, you hear about someone who says, oh, well, you know, this other person, you know, we've all heard this, this person published like 15 articles this year and they got cited 500 times, but they, you know, you don't hear anything about what the ideas are in that. In those 15 publications, you hear the numbers. And it's, I think sometimes we emphasize that it's because we're, we don't spend enough time reading each other's work. And the reason we don't spend enough time reading each other's work is that we're all spending all of our time trying to get to the numbers that other people could refer to because they're, they're not reading our work. Yeah, and I think one, one other aspect to that is you don't, there's no discussion about how that paper, those papers were created, the process, were they doing it in a very militant way, which is not friendly to their colleagues, which is undermining the success of others, which is, um, I don't know, which is, was just doing things which are unethical or was, you know, are they, what was the process to get to the goal as well? And I'm, I'm, of course, there are many people who are just wonderful people out there in science and they're, they're achieving goals um, in the best way possible. But there's also people who are quite cutthroat, I think, out there. Yeah. And, and they're not giving credit, for example, to or co-authorship to some of the people who help them, especially younger PhDs or maybe grad students. And there's no discussion at all that I've seen about the process. And I think when, when I was reflecting also back to what you were saying, Courtney, is what do I want to get from the time that I'm spending and a lot of that is the process. The, if I'm not enjoying the process of doing it, then, mm. you know, if I don't learn something throughout the way, um, the times when I'm, when I'm thinking and I'm enjoying academic work the most is a time where I, I come away from a long conversation, maybe, maybe a podcast or with a, with a colleague taking a walk. And I felt like I actually learned something and I actually changed my mind about a particular thing or I was inspired to to think about this problem in a new way. And it's very difficult to, to measure those types of occurrences, you could say, or it's very hard to quantify those things. I don't, I don't keep a log and, and, and say that you kind of just note that that was a successful way of doing things, but it never really comes out and is reflected in at the end of the year when we have to go through our department and I have to submit all the papers that we did and all the project proposals, those things never get manifested in the academic process or the evaluation of, of the success. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I think part of it is simply you have to be able to find a space for yourself to live out some of these ideas without, I mean, I think a lot, I see a lot of like environmental studies students struggling with these kinds of ideas where they, they experience this like very problematic system that they kind of participate in. And so what do you do? And I think there can be like this paralysis where it feels like you kind of have to do all or nothing. So, I mean, I think it's part of it is like, how do you find, a space where you can afford yourself to live out some of these ideals without waiting for the system around you to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, you know, basically acting as if the system was a bit different. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm being very critical. So now I'm trying to. <laughs> no, it's good reflection because I, I mean, every once in a while I'll have a conversation like this with a colleague, but you know, often, oftentimes you're just going through your daily routine and even just to have a bit of personal reflection time can be a bit difficult. To reflect on, you know, what did I really do this week? You know, did I did I had did I learn something? Did I yeah, did I, did I read valid. did I read an interesting paper or what? Or was I mostly distracted, not really doing the things that I want to? And I think that's that's some those types of discussions. I think mostly happen internally at, at the individual level, but they can also happen at the department level or at your working group level and say, hey, what did we learn this week in our group? What did we? What 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 are some better thing, ways that we can work as a group together? to to help each other like can we distract each other less you know you know can we set up rules and norms around distracting each other less or can we do we do some some activity together or can we shape the the, the environment in our hall or in our group in a way which can allow us to achieve the things which we actually want and assuming that if we get more of those processes which we like 
learning and long discussions that the outputs will follow. I mean, I do think, yeah, I mean, so a lot of this is about community building, right? Building communities of practice, communities, like your local community that, that can be supportive of you and that you can be supportive of too. I mean, it makes me think again about, you know, this still in COVID idea of this environmental social science network. Like it could be interesting to try to, you know, formalize that as a community of practice that supports these norms, that kind of puts them out there as saying, like, these are some principles that we think we should all adhere to that, that helps us do our work better. Mm-hmm. To basically help mo- be a model somehow for the establishment of these communities of practice that are ultimately what we engage with day in, day out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I think a corollary to this conversation around how we work and, like, how we engage with our own research is engaging in community-based work and with community partners, right? And developing research questions together or even just trying to develop research questions that matter and are relevant, you know, and mm. making the time for that. Because mm-hmm. yeah. that has to come out of conversations and showing up and just being present. And that's not typically rewarded in this context either and I know there's a lot of conversation about that and that's a whole nother topic almost but I do think it relates to this I think they're kind of part and parcel with the like the way that our indicators of success within academia are built and what's built into that and left out Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a bit of this collective action problem of beliefs I mean we've talked about this quite a few times on the podcast that the science system itself is a is a collective action problem and most of that and what we were trying to do with the network is is partly, Michael, building the database. So we, a lot of that is building data and collecting data and sharing data in a way which is useful both individually for research projects, but also collectively for everyone else who can, can use that data and make it more comparable, for example. But it's also this kind of interpersonal collective action problem of beliefs where we, we want we want to be we want to have a department which functions in a way which allows us to have the free time and doesn't distract us. Uh, but we also are complicit in making it worse for ourselves by also playing a role in the, in those distractions and actively doing them ourselves. And yeah, it was interesting that you said this limousine liberals kind of never heard that. It's pretty funny, but uh, it's kind of this, you know, I, we want those values to change, but it's so difficult personally to actually do it, even though we recognize intellectually that we can't, that we want them. And maybe a, the large yeah. majority of people actually do recognize intellectually that that's what we want to do. But when it comes down to how you actually do your daily life, it's, it's just so difficult behaviorally to make any changes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think again, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, it's gotta be more than nothing, right? It's mm-hmm. gotta be, okay. So there's this great book that I, I tell all my students, and this is the first time I'm going to swear on this, I'm sure actually it's not the first time I'm going to swear on this podcast, but um, the book is by this guy named Mark Manson, I think, and it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And I just think it's it's a really great book. I, I, I tell all my, my stressed out students that they should read it, and, and now I'm trying to remember why I'm bringing this up. What were you just saying, Stefan? Oh, yeah, I mean, he, basically the idea is... is that we all, oh, it's this, it's that we're all failing kind of all the time. We're all failing in like little ways. We fail ourselves in like little ways. Like, oh, I, you know, I would love to, I would have enjoyed practicing the guitar this morning. I would enjoy, you know, I wish I had called my brother and had, a, you know, instead of talking to him for 10 minutes and then hanging up because I think I'm busy, I, I, I would, why didn't I talk to him for like 40 minutes and, and hear about how his kids are doing? Like, mm-hmm. and this guy basically says that, you know, mature, maturation is basically about trying to fail a little bit less. 
which sounds maybe like it's not a high bar, but um, <laughs> but I think there's like an an implied patience with yourself and this idea that like more than nothing is is actually quite a lot. Yeah, that's it's an interesting <laughs> reflection. I mean, I'd also say part of it is not being so hard on yourself and realizing that everyone is doing the same. And, you know, I think we tend to yes. think that we are unique somehow when we have those thought loops and we were so hard on ourselves and we're guilty. Yeah. Right. I should have talked with my brother longer and be like, you know what? It's okay. Like it, I'm, I'll do it next time. You know, like I'm, I, I'll, yeah. I'll try to, I, I'm not going to be so hard on myself this time. And at the end of the day, I've, I've accumulated 35 different failures and I've told myself this negative thought loop about myself so many times throughout the day. It doesn't feel very good at the end. No, and you're not helping yourself. You're not helping other people. Yeah. And we're not, I think that's right. Like we, we kind of get caught up in, I don't know. I mean, the author, I think, says that he basically says, that don't, you're not as special as you kind of think you are. And usually that sounds bad. Like, well, we want to be special. But it's actually said to fun. Like we're actually not. Like everyone else is struggling in these same ways. Yeah, I think it's extremely relieving and somehow empowering yes. when you realize that literally everyone is going through the same thing. It might not be in the exact same context, but there's right. something in their life which they talk negatively to themselves about. Yeah, and they have they have their own version of the same thing. Right, right. They're telling themselves the same story. And yeah, it kind of brings yourself like you get a little self empathy, but then you also get a little bit more empathy for others. And we could probably use more of that in the academic system. You know, especially as, as it's so we're all recognized that everyone's busy, everyone's stressed, everyone's putting a lot of pressure on themselves. Um, and even just doing it once, people can sometimes be very grateful that you just have a little bit of empathy. Like, you know what? Turn it in next week. It's fine. I totally understand. And the, someone could be so grateful for that, um, for just that little act. So what it makes me think about uh, is just how, at least hearing kind of what you're both saying, is how important those moments are where you step back for a minute, you know, and you engage in something else, whether it's hanging out with your kid or going outside or going for a walk or having a coffee. And I think what those moments like that for me allow me to tap back into what my own goals are, you know, and recognizing that a lot of these like little failures that uh, stack up over the day are not necessarily failures that I care about. <laughs> there may be things that are imposed on me by others or that I perceive to be imposed by others, you know. Right. Um, and it's really hard to stick to your own set of goals and priorities when they may not align with, you know, all of the, the people that you work with or the, the, you know, academic, like the academic success definition, you know, but I feel myself trying to do that more and more is to, you know, like it, it you know, you feel the stress build up and then it's like, wait, this isn't actually something I care about yeah. <laughs> and being empowered to, say, okay, if I don't care about it, that's okay, you know? Yeah. It's hard, but... It's really hard, but, I mean, yeah, it's very liberating to actually... And it's funny, right? I feel like in our culture, we're told that we could kind of care about everything, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like the, the moral person is someone who has... They, they have a well-substantiated opinion about this issue, and this is how they care about it. And it's like, ah, I just don't, you don't have the energy to care about everything. You can say you do, but, like, at the end of the day... Yeah, I heard, you know, I heard an interesting quote the other day that it's okay to not have opinion about something and it's kind well, of trivial. It's, it's and then you realize that like we, when you hear and you're in a, in a faculty, whatever, you're in a working group meeting, it could also be in a non-academic context, but someone says something and you kind of feel this urge to like have your opinion and you're like, I got to say, I got to say something here. You know, that's kind of the yeah. internal loop that you have inside yourself and it's okay to just sit back and be like, you know what? I, 
I don't have an opinion here. Or if it, what, the one that's kind of arising in my thought, it, it's actually not really well thought out anyways. So there's really no right. urge for me to need to say that. Because once I say it, maybe I'll feel the need to really like double down and defend it when I really don't actually know or care. Exactly. That, yeah. That's really interesting thought process, I think. And you kind of, then you can, one thing, once you take that step back in the conversation, for example, in, in a meeting, and then you can see how other people get into themselves into those situations. And that's, you know, I think we can all benefit a little bit from, from stepping back. Well, I like the norms that we're building. In <laughs> I do want to talk, Courtney, about, um, about the project that you're in, though. I think that's, that's super interesting. <laughs> Absolutely. I know, but this has been such a great conversation. I, I feel like I've been wanting a conversation like this lately, so I appreciate it. Well, yeah, I hope we can, I hope we can do many more of them. Um, hopefully on this podcast is, is a appropriate venue. I hope so, where people can feel comfortable to talk about these things together and, and share their thoughts. So you did your PhD at University of Vermont, and then you're now at Stanford. I would be interested in, in hearing about the project that you're working in now. Yeah, so we, we chatted a bit about the work during my PhD. So I was, and we talked about it a while ago, I guess. But the quick summary of that is that I was looking at... Um, water quality policy in Vermont and in New Zealand and how the rule structures within the policy uh, shape decision-making and behavior on farms. And so did some survey work and did some interviews and used Ostrom's social ecological systems framework, which we chatted about your work with that. And then it really, it came from Michael, from you introducing me to that. So that was cool. I ended up using that. Um, and now I've transitioned to thinking about groundwater. I did a little bit of work while I was at Vermont on groundwater in California because it's this sort of interesting moment in the state. There was some new policy, some new legislation passed in 2014 that for the first time mandates statewide groundwater policy. So somewhat a surprising fact that California one of the first, I think it's the last Western state to put statewide groundwater policy in place. So it had, had you know, piecemeal policies, which was, of course, what, what Lynn Ostrom did work on and then Bill Blomquist. So a lot of that work on this sort of community-based emergent groundwater policies and adjudications. But then as agriculture increased and as population increased you know you're continuing to use groundwater over time and now the state is sort of at this place where it really needs to well they they kind of came together and decided that it's time to put in statewide policy and the way that they designed the policy is really interesting because rather than like forcing this top-down structure they're requiring local basins to create their own governance structure and then create their own plans and so each basin has their own um, approach. And at this point, the governance structures are in place and the plans are starting to come out. And so the plans, the first round of plans will be out in January and then the second round will be in two years. And so it's this really interesting sort of natural experiment of how different communities come together to manage groundwater um, all at the same time, but under different conditions based on, you know, where they're at and what their land use looks like and what their history of groundwater and surface water use in the region is. Um, and so I'm fascinated by this process 
and have a lot to learn still. But the two pieces that I'm focusing in on for my postdoc are the first is there's this mandate to incorporate climate change data into the plans, but it's pretty vague and allows for a lot of interpretation. So I'm looking at how each of the plans incorporates climate change to see if they sort of serve as climate adaptation plans, sort of this idea of that mandate is an attempt to mainstream climate adaptation into groundwater planning, but to look at how that emerges in each of these different processes and what are the factors that enable robust or resilient climate adaptation planning within this broader groundwater sustainability plan. And then the second piece is going to be drilling in on the incentives for groundwater recharge, I think mostly amongst farmers in the agricultural community, since recharge is sort of the big win-win if you can make it work, right? You can get water back in the ground to use again in the future. It could be sort of like a bank, but there's a lot of questions about whether it's a credit and you can bank it or whether you're going to trade it on a market or whether you're going to get just a rebate for putting water back into the ground. And then I'm curious how each of those would shape sort of long-term sustainability of groundwater use and then community dynamics amongst farmers. So that's those are sort of the high level what I'm starting, and I'm just really at the beginning phase of getting that work going. Yeah, very cool. Uh, how many basins are there in California? So there's a lot of basins, uh, but I think there's like, well, I'm not even going to say the high number that I think it is, but I know that <laughs> under the policy, it's the high and medium priority basins that are required to comply. And so there's 125, I think. that are required under the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act to make a plan. And so, and then of those, 18 are considered critically overdrafted. And the critically overdrafted are the ones that are required to put up the first round of plans out. So those are coming out in January. Okay. Yeah. And, and then with that though, it's like they sort of fracture, some of them have sort of fragmented off and you'll get multiple plans per basin. In some cases you'll get one plan. So there's, so it's, of those critically overdrafted, there's about 60 plans that are coming out. Do you know if there's any sort of network structure or constitutional, I guess in this like state level rule structure, which these different basins, which are critical, can draw on resources to, to get help in the developing rules, developing different mechanisms, um, or are they really more on their own? to come up with these plans? I think there's a lot of resources. um, And there is some work that's going on. Anita Millman is a a professor at UMass Amherst, and she's here at Stanford as a visiting fellow right now. And she's got a project with Bill Blomquist and Tara Moran at Stanford. And they're looking at this sort of coordination and collaboration amongst these different governance agencies um, Mm -hmm. within each basin. And I think part of their work will get at what some of the resources are and who gets access to them. But it's something I'm interested in too, in terms of the role of consultants. A lot of the technical work is being done by consultants. And so whether an agency has in-house staff that can do the plan or they hire someone out and then who, where that funding comes from to hire, there's a number of resources provided by the Department of Water Resources, like California Department of Water Resources, and then I know they've been engaged, I think, with, you know, they, they serve as a resource and want to be. But there's there's just 
it's sort of different in, in each basin in terms of who's who's being tapped into for resources and access. And so it's not something that I think there's a full scope of right now because it's all still happening. Yeah, given the, the Nobel Prize in economics, it makes me think if anyone's trying to look at this from a randomized controlled trial perspective, or <laughs> is this strictly going to be an observational study to see what happens? Or, or is there anyone who's thinking about types of interventions to help certain certain basins develop these governance mechanisms? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I think it, I'm pretty sure it's just going to be observational in that sense. As you might imagine, it's a pretty contentious process. And so I think as much as I'd love to be able to do a statewide randomized control trial in, in this process, I don't think that would be possible. But there are, there are a lot of different angles that people are looking at. And I think one of the benefits of this sort of natural experiment is that there's potentially, uh, as the second round of GSPs come out, and I think it's in 2022, you know, there might be enough um, variation to, you know, it's not going to be your randomized controlled trial, but it might be a pretty decent observational study, you know, where you can try to control for a number of factors that might be confounding. Which I'm excited about. That's my my long term plan. Is really looking at what happens in 2022, and then, you know, five ten years out after that, right? Because once because the plans are really just a document, and whether and how they get enacted is is really what's fascinating. Are you going to use the uh, the SES framework as you mentioned before, Ostrom's SES framework to to do this analysis or part of this analysis? So that's a big question for me right now. I I've I mean, as we chatted about before, I've been thinking a lot about the SES framework and I'd love to continue to work with it. Um, and I'd love to chat with both of you about that more um, at some point, sort of thinking on it and, and where it's going um, and how we can use it and using it sort of in a, I mean, this is really, Michael, your work first with the SESMAD project and then this, network right is trying to get us trying to get people on the same page at least in some uh-huh. in some way of like how can we work together to to find something generalizable or have a concerted uh-huh. coordinated effort but um yeah right now i'm not quite sure how it will fit in but i think i mean the the two levels that i often think about the the social ecological systems framework is one it's sort of just a way to view life <laughs> You know, it's like, this is how things happen. And these are the elements that are a part of that. And so I think it'll always, it very much informs the way that I view problems and set up my research and studies. And then I think that, you know, the oper- the way that I operationalize it is is then very, you know, very different and drilling into the specific question that I want to ask and the variables that I'm going to hold constant and the variables that I'm going to test and and how I go about doing that. And so I'm not sure if I'll get to that level with it. Although I do think that in the the incentives piece, it might be drawing again on the rule structures out of the institutional analysis and development framework. That idea of testing how these different rules in an action situation shape the behavior and outcomes. I think that is the direction that I might go. Good old IAD. Yeah. Oh no. Um. Courtney, did you mention if you um, engaged with Mark Lubell at UC Davis? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm actually headed up there in a couple weeks to chat with them. But I've been, so one of my advisors at UVM, Meredith Niles, did her PhD with Mark. And so I know, I know Mark and his work, hopefully, hoping to collaborate with him in the future. So when I interviewed him for this podcast a couple weeks ago. We've been part of the same pursuit group at Sysinc. 
over oh, nice. Annapolis. And he sent, um, he basically uh, recently electronically introduced Meredith and I. So we're going to try to, and apparently Meredith is good friends with some of my good friends at Dartmouth. So we're all going to try to get together to meet in like a couple of weeks. Nice. Just wanted to connect those dots for us all. I know. I think I tried to introduce you guys like four years ago and then it didn't work, but mm. alas, I'm glad it's happening now. I think you yeah, guys well, have much synergies in your work. I mean, it could be fun to also have Meredith as a guest on the podcast. Yeah, actually. she would be awesome. Mm. She's so you're still, and so she's still involved in, in this work as well? or like? Yeah, so that's another piece that I didn't really mention. So the work that I started at UVM on the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is shortened to SIGMA because that's a mouthful. So the work on SIGMA at UVM was with Meredith. So Meredith had a grant to look at a case study of the kind of early Sigma implementation in Yolo County. And so we did some focus groups there in 2016 and then a survey in 2017 and have had a couple papers come out on that. And then she last year was funded to do um, to expand that survey work to a few other counties throughout the state. And so we just have the survey data back from that. Okay. So there's sort of these two tracks. So that's sort of different. That's farmer mm. perceptions around groundwater management and Sigma and then my postdoc work. And I'm hoping that they'll, they'll connect because it would be, she's got an amazing resource with that survey data. Mm, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Courtney, I'm interested in one thing you mentioned there was that you, that the SES framework was a good way of thinking about how things happen in life and, and how you structure your research. And then you mentioned that, yeah, you think about a lot of your research problems or, or perhaps how you're going to approach a research generally or conceptually around the SES framework, but then how you go about selecting variables, how you're going to measure them, which ones you're going to test for, uh, you kind of move away from that. And I would just be interested to hear your perspective on why do you think this gap with the framework exists? I, I don't think it's unique to, to the SES framework, but I'm interested in how we close this gap between having something which is usefully conceptually and then getting it down uh, to having practically measurable variables, which everyone can kind of, it's not so difficult to, to have this black box in the middle for how we, we go from concept to, to you know, study design to survey okay. design and then yeah. implementation and measurement. So I can't shut up about this, but um, <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, how many times do we read a new article that's announced on Twitter or something and it says new framework for something, something, and we read it and there's like a lot of cute boxes and arrows, etc. And then, I mean, when I was in postdoc, people used to ask me like, so where is the manual for this framework? And I would, would sheepishly say, well, I don't think there is one or, you know, the man, Lynn was the manual basically, right? Um, if you want to figure out how to implement this thing. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm co-opting this a little bit, but <laughs> I'm going to say you asked for it, Stefan. Yeah, sure. It's just, I think there needs to be, we need to think about like, what does it actually mean? We don't, I don't think we have a good understanding in the field of what it actually means to use a framework. I don't think we understand fully what, it, you know, we have like, we can give some boilerplate about, well, you know, a framework populates your world with the objects that you consider, blah, blah, blah. But like, how do you go from a framework to what? A spreadsheet? Is that what we're going for? To a relational database? Well, we don't really know. Do you just use it qualitatively? I mean, I so there's this really underdeveloped discourse, I would say in environmental social science almost broadly about like, you know, well, we test theories. That's what we're supposed to do with this object called the theory. We're not really sure like what the verb that we should consistently attach to the 
idea of a framework is. Um, we're now we're supposed to like incrementally develop these frameworks over time. Well, is that do you test a framework? Like, how do you do that? I just I feel like every time someone develops a new framework, they should be required to then have a one-page document that says, "And here's how you would implement this framework in an empirical project." This is how this integrates and engages with this narrative of science that we are trying to buy into. And if not, then what are we using it for and how? Because it's, anyway, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's, uh, it's exactly the, the issue. But yeah, Courtney, I'm interested. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I, to I totally agree. Um, and I would, so I would say I haven't, I haven't moved away from that second piece, like from the operationalizing it. I definitely do want to continue to use it in that way. Um, I just haven't quite gotten there in this work yet of whether that's going to be the defining frame. Um, but I would say I spent maybe, maybe the unfortunate thing, Michael, is that with you introducing me to this framework, you also introduced me to that struggle that you just described. And I spent uh, most sorry. of my PhD in that. <laughs> um, Welcome and to yeah, yeah. I think where, you know, and it was interesting because I really did feel like, you know, I was like Googling every paper that has ever used the framework and just trying to dissect what they did and how they did it. And and ultimately, I sort of came to my own approach, for better or worse, um, and sort of thought, and I've, I've heard this from others now, and I think maybe, Michael, you would say this too, but as this, for me, I really want to use the SES framework as an analytical framework and not just a diagnostic. So using it as a way to test relationships and build theories in a way that you're, um, you know, accounting for at least, um, you know, it, at least in terms of saying like what I am accounting for and what I am not <laughs> in, uh, in the broader social ecological context, right? And so trying to be explicit about which variables are varying and which variables you're trying to hold constant and which are not the focus of the study and might have been, um, you know, they might be touched on in terms of uh, context that you can't control for or, or things to further investigate later. But what I was really focused on, and this is what my approach to the SES framework is to drive a question through it. And so mm -hmm. I was interested in the question of how do how does the difference in rule structure shape on-farm behavior? And so I saw on-farm behavior as that, that sort of nutrient management within a farm system as my action situation, which is a little bit funky. And this is maybe my biggest insecurity in terms of how I applied this. Because it's it's sort of it's individual behavior. It's not necessarily mm. um, uh, your your you know interaction between two actors. Right. Although if you abstract, it's many actors across the landscape are making these decisions in concert almost, right? Um, and that it's the outcome of all of those that matters in non-point source pollution, where you have you know nutrients running off of farms or leaching into groundwater, and so. I took this question of, so if we vary these rule structures, then what happens to the behaviors? And then I used that to frame out um, both studies. So one was the both empirical studies. So one was um, using survey data and then the other what So there was there were less variables involved in that question um, or that study. And then the other was um, 
using interviews. And so this is the one that we, I chatted with um, Stefan a little bit about before, where it's sort of a uh, maybe somewhat novel way of addressing it. And we'll see how, um, yeah, how, how it's how it's received once I submit the paper, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. But I interviewed farmers framing out the interviews using the social ecological systems framework. And then I coded the interviews with the framework. And then I um, elic essentially elicited mental models in terms of how farmers perceived the social ecological context to be driving their behavior. And then I analyzed those using network analysis to look at the key drivers that were identified as shaping behavior within each of the uh, three case study contexts that I worked in, in Vermont and New Zealand. And so it allowed the sort of most salient elements of the social ecological system from the farmer perspective to emerge in the results. Um, and I think it worked well for me in terms of how I applied it. Um, but I haven't, it's sort of a different way of approaching it than I've seen done before. So I don't know if that, that sort of yeah. answers the broader question of how I approach the framework, but that's, I, I definitely see it as a um, sort of a guide, like a guide for then driving a question through. Yeah, that's super interesting. As a lot of the debate is, as you said, Michael, I think that's what most people think is that, it, you know, there is no manual and it's a, this is a very critical gap, which which needs to be addressed. But as I was listening to you talk about what you did in this project, Courtney, it, it, it was the same for, for a few of the projects that I've done. And I think the other side of the coin is that it forces a lot of methodological innovation in connecting a lot of different mm -hmm. things. Because you say, okay, we have now this framework. How do we pair that with different data collection methodologies? That's going to give us different types of data. We have to kind of reconceptualize how that data is going to interact with each other and maybe have some new sort of method, network analysis or something, uh, a third or fourth method to bring in to connect them. And that was really the reflection that we've had in our in our projects as well. And when I started my PhD, it was really supposed to be very traditional, uh, more like the way Michael described it, to kind of find multiple cases around the world and around, about some small-scale fisheries and then try to compare them in a way which is the most comparable possible. And what we realized is that to, to even get to that step, we first have to have methodological innovation. And then all of the cases instead became, at the end, different ways methodologically in which you could apply the framework. Because you said hmm. first, okay, we have to rethink methodologically how to do it quantitatively. How do you do it all quantitatively? How do you do it all qualitatively? And then how do you do it with a project where you have mixed amounts of data and different variables coming into it? And I think that could be, maybe that's the first realm of that needs to be explored before we can get to a f place where we can then talk about having um, a manual which, which gives a more structured way for approaching the framework. Yeah. yeah, it's fun to think about. I hadn't thought about it the way you just said in terms of it forces the innovation. It's fun to think think about it that way. And I think it does. I mean, you've seen it's kind of a better framing right now <laughs> to, to look across all of the papers that have used the SES framework and think about it in terms of innovation. And now it's like figuring out what works and what we move forward with. Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of the focus has been on, on theory. It's about we're trying to get a generalizable theory, but we've kind of overlooked this whole step of the fact that interdisciplinary or even just multidisciplinary research requires a pretty big leaps in methodological innovation because there's different yeah. types of data different fundamental assumptions when you're collecting that data 
um, which need to be looked at. And there's so much discussion of theory, but kind of somehow leapfrogged this this step. Yeah, um, and so with that, I think what that how that connects to at least my thinking and my application of the SES framework is that I was really I'm really interested in um, kind of social psychological and behavioral aspects of decision making. Mm-hmm. And so incorporating that into the framework was really challenging and thinking about how you get the data for those variables, you know, at the scale um, required for a study or a question. You know, it's like in survey data, you can sometimes have those, um, you know, the variables that you would need around attitudes and norms and um, goals and you know, depending on what social psychological theory you might use. Um, and then, but then linking that to ecological outcomes, it was, it was really mind bending <laughs> for a while. Um, and I think that's how I sort of came to this survey based study that had a really formal incorporation of the theory of planned behavior. And then an interviews based study that um, allowed for this kind of broader suite of um, you know, psychological variables to emerge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I mean, listening to you, Courtney, it pretty much sounds like you're tackling, I mean, if someone asked me, like, list the big challenges in the field, you're kind of ticking them off. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, because another issue that I don't think we've addressed is what is the role of theory in our science? What is the role, say, of, of psychological and social psychological theory? Are we, we know that they matter, you know, like, Motivational crowding out, for example, is a really popular one for people to try to incorporate into observational studies. But we don't have a good sense of, are we testing them? Or is that just done in the lab? If we're not testing them, like, what are we doing with them? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, and that's, I think, I do think that's sort of where we need to go in terms Mm. of taking these effects and results that we see in psychology and behavioral economics and throwing them into the field, into the messiness of, Mm -hmm. you know, where does this actually play a role and and to what extent and what are the other things that it interacts with? You know, I'm really, I really love the clean, neat lab based controlled studies that give us the evidence for these effects, but the extent Mm. to which they play a role in these longer term you know, decision-making processes in these complex issues, right? That yeah. that's what we don't really know. And they may or may not, and to what extent, I mean, that, I think that's what I find really fascinating, but it's so hard to do. Yeah, no, I agree. That. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's what makes most sense to me is that we're, we're kind of, we are throwing things into the messiness of the world and seeing how they shake out. And it's a matter to me of like, how do you engage with that messiness consistently yeah. in some way? All right, team, I would love to talk about this for hours and hours, but I'm late for a lunch date. Thanks, Michael. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, it was really good to catch up, Courtney. I'm, um, I'm really excited to work with you on this. I think it's, I have found it, I mean, getting back to what we talked about in the first however long, like I have found working on this podcast to just be a really healthy antidote to some of these mental tendencies. It's been, I don't know, I've loved it. It's, it's been a way of really like feeding my brain and like my intellectual spirit to just like talk about this stuff and not kind of sit in your own head and stare at PDFs. <laughs> yeah, me too. I have to second that. So yeah, I hope, well, you, hope you want to work with us on this after our discussion today. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for taking the lead and getting it started. It's been an awesome resource for me so far. So excited to be a part of it. Great.
Well, I'm gonna we're gonna try to publish Mark Lubell's interview in a couple weeks too. Nice. Um, so cool. Well, I'm gonna run, but I look forward to catching up with both of you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Michael. All right. See you. All right. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.